0: What's up, medics? Welcome to the Jesus of Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow unqualified rifleman, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about Hacksaw Ridge, and Graham, my one question for you is, should
1: Christians bear arms? If it were just that black and white of a solution, Kev, we've got incredible film today, Desmond Doss, a conscientious objector in World War II who chooses not to bear arms, and clearly it works for him in the end. He's able to save 75 men. I know we're going to dive deep into this movie. I don't think it's that high and fast of a rule, though.
0: I had never seen this movie before, but you had. We both wanted to do a war movie, especially coming off Wedding Crashers. So tell me a little bit maybe about your experience with this movie. How many times have you seen it? And then maybe more broadly, how does it stack up to other war movies?
1: Yeah, so I saw this movie for the first time a couple of years ago. I actually don't remember. The second time I watched it was this past week in preparation for the podcast. I think it's funny that... Even though Mel Gibson is not in this movie, he is also behind the scenes of it, and we see that Mel Gibson really loves these war films, right? When we talk about doing stuff like Braveheart, and while Passion of the Christ is not a war film, uh, another violent film, I mean, we're talking The Patriot, and here comes along a film that is all about nonviolence, uh, that still in its in its nature is very, very violent. And I know you and I have talked a lot about storytelling in the past, and how oftentimes it's engaging to follow along with a protagonist who has a very steadfast commitment to a couple of principles or maybe one specific principle. And so I would say it's solid. Uh, I wouldn't put it up with the saving private Ryans of the world, but it's definitely uh, above the 50th percentile for war movies for me. Um, and I think provides a little bit of a different take on war than the traditional hero saves everybody in the battle film.
0: Yeah, it's definitely different. And I want to go back to your point about the gruesome violence because I typically read critic reviews after I watch a movie I haven't seen before. And I know I'm going to disagree with them, but I kind of want to know what they're saying just because this is my world. There were a couple of people that were sort of saying like, the story is one that condemns violence because our hero is a pacifist who refuses to pick up a rifle. But the way that it's shot and the amount of gruesome gore and blood and death that we see actually glorifies the violence
1: yeah i mean i do think the existence of violence really sets the groundwork for heroism right and i think we see that specifically in passion of the christ i don't think that's a movie that directly glorifies violence but the violence is so integral to the plot because it builds the protagonist jesus yeah
0: i was amazed at how well done the
1: war scenes were i just feel like in the
0: last 10 years like action war scenes have just gotten incredible like from hacksaw ridge to game of thrones like i feel like i'm on the battlefield
1: yeah no it's incredibly engaging and they do a great job of providing a contrast between hacksaw ridge the actual battlefield and then okinawa as they're kind of climbing down up and down this uh this cargo rope ladder here and so i think it helps also that we have a very specific set aside battlefield like you were either on the battlefield or you're not on the battlefield and it's pretty black and white i don't know i think that provides a little bit of contrast and like creates this the mystique of this hacksaw ridge space where pretty much anything goes the whole third act was basically on the battlefield first act is sort of
0: like is he going to go to war basically second Mm -hmm. act is like is he going to make it out of training camp survive the politics and get on the field. And then the long third act is like, will they win the battle? Basically? Will he be a hero?
1: Yeah. It's interesting for a war movie. It feels like half of this movie doesn't take place during war at all. It's just getting over that initial hump.
0: Yeah. I think that's like the point I was kind of trying to make there is like a lot of times there's sort of this weaving back and forth of like battlefield, personal battlefield back home, or at least I'm thinking about the Patriot and Braveheart, other Mel Gibson movies. But in this one, it's very much like we're here like we're at the home front for the first part, and then we're in the training camps and the courts and the tribunals, and then we are at Okinawa.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree.
0: So one thing I was hoping to talk about a little bit is the music, because I think that might have been my favorite thing about the movie. The movie wasn't a slam dunk for me, but I thought the music was beautiful. Let's listen to it a little bit.
1: This film has a little bit of a sadder lens to it. And I think a lot of war films do. You know, the first thing I know we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but the first thing that came to mind was Pocahontas when listening to that soundtrack. And I know that's another Mel Gibson tie, but it was more beautiful and subtle than domineering and heroic. Yeah. And that is right down Main Street for me. I absolutely love that stuff. All right, Kev, this is one of the first movies that we've done that really overtly deals with Christianity. Obviously, Desmond, our main character, is a devout Seventh-day Adventist. We've got Isaiah 41 being read in the opening scene, images of Cain and Abel, the Ten Commandments. What of cultural Christianity do you feel like this movie really nails as being really accurate? And what of this movie do you feel like is Hollywood maybe taking an outside look to the inside of what it's like to be a Christian?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, like I said, I hadn't seen this before. And so when I watched the trailer and saw that it had a Christian essentially as the protagonist, Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know much about that specifically, but uh, I was kind of turned off because I guess I just expect Hollywood to give us the worst possible representation when they open with the scripture too, at the beginning, I didn't like that. That was kind of an eye roll for me.
1: I agree that it was a little bit eye roll. And then you get the Southern drawl and you're like, okay, this is another one of those Bible bell kind of Christian, (laughs) Christian films. I will say one of the things I appreciate about it is that the hope about vocation of any kind, regardless of if you're a barista or if you're a soldier, is that um, being a follower of Jesus is going to elevate your work ethic. It's going to elevate um, just the way in which you are perceived By others from a purely moral sense and I think Desmond very much lives that out in this film yeah and I think we see that in the bible right I think about like how Joshua
0: rises up the ranks in Egypt because he's like good at his job and Pharaoh relies on him he's dependable I think about Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar how like he and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego like ate uh, vegetables and drank water instead of like the wine and I don't know, snacks, whatever the like unnutritious alternative was then. The and, like <laughs> They became stronger and like better looking than those around. Like I uh, I think we see this idea of like a Christian being like kind of superior in the workforce or like dependable in a secular sense uh, instead of trying to sort of apply this Christian lens to everything they do and sort of like a tacky, non-organic way. But yeah, I guess I just kind of want to push against the idea that like christianity is sort of this like 1700s america old white man religion that's like had its day because the reality is like the ideological principles of christianity have like very little to do with america like this is christianity is so historical like we are grounded in first century rome with jesus's crucifixion as like the center point of this whole thing and the seminary saying these days is like the holy spirit has left the northern hemisphere and gone south of the equator like globally statistically like christianity is very non-american right now it's like booming in africa and south america and even in china like there are interesting studies uh been going through this book by rebecca mclaughlin with my church and secular research is sort of projecting christianity to be much bigger in china than it is in america like 20, uh, 30, 40 years from now. So kind of interesting stuff. Like, I guess that that's why it was kind of an eye roll when we sort of see Desmond Doss's family, like
1: Bible Belt, Isaiah passage opening up. Um, oh boy, like what Mm -hmm. are we in for? Yeah. And I would, I would even add to that, that, a story that is riddled with such intensive violence and conflict lends itself to an audience that is more receptive to these deep questions about humanity and religion, about where we go when we die. And similarly, when we think about world Christianity, you know, when you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, or if you don't know that it's safe to go to sleep in your own home, like those questions are a lot more pressing and present. And we're able to avoid those by kind of numbing ourselves out in, in modern America.
0: Yeah, well said. Coming full circle though. I'm kind of surprised this is our first movie to have kind of explicit Christianity overlap. This mm-hmm. is our 35th movie Oof. and you know, there's Narnia's out there. What else have
1: we talked about doing? Our God's not dead. God's not dead 2. God's not three. God's <laughs> oh, not dead gosh. 3. He's still we not don't dead. talk about these.
0: <laughs> Should we get on with some awards?
1: Yeah, let's do it. All right, hit me with your Lazarus Award for the high key gospel moment of Hacksaw Ridge. So my Lazarus Award goes to the Lord help me get one more scene.
2: Please, Lord. Help me get one more. Help me get one more.
1: So I want to use this award and this scene specifically to talk about the power of prayer and ministry. This is what we see Desmond doing as he's on the top of Hacksaw Ridge chasing down all of his injured fellow soldiers, uh, bandaging them up, and sending them down the side of Hacksaw Ridge where they can be healed. So we know from the Bible that God answers prayers, right? We've got so many examples in the Old Testament, we've got Hannah and Moses and Abraham. Uh, and so many more, and on into the New Testament following the life and ministry of Jesus. And I like to think about what is happening on the top of Hacksaw Ridge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, as ministry. And maybe this isn't ministry in the most traditional sense, right? It's not two individuals sitting across the table from one another sharing a latte at Starbucks talking about Romans. This is hands-on, active in the battlefield, attending to the needs of someone. And actually, if you look up the definition of to minister, it is, quote, to attend to the needs of someone. And yet, we see in this process of quote-unquote ministry that prayer is Desmond's first and most integral step. And I think that's really important. Why is that important? Because it's an important and powerful reminder that we are not the heroes of our own stories. It demonstrates a humble and yet accurate awareness of our place in the world and our place in the kingdom, consequently. He doesn't work for Young Life anymore, but one of the old senior vice presidents is this guy named John Vickery, and he has this quote I think that's been used throughout our mission a lot. I work for Young Life. He says, quote, Ministry without prayer is the highest form of arrogance. I think that's really fascinating. It's been something that's stuck with me for the last couple of years because oftentimes we can become so fixated on attending to the needs of others that we put ourselves in the driver's seat of who the hero of that story is, right? Like I can become so focused on caring for another individual's needs uh, or solving a problem that I forget that I actually can't solve all these problems, right? Like I, I begin to put myself, like I said, in the driver's seat. I want to look at a couple different instances in scripture where God promises to not only hear our prayer, <coughs> but respond to our prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.7 says, quote, pray without ceasing," And 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so notice that we can't really divorce these actions of prayer and action. Uh, that in petitioning to God, we see Desmond, uh, one, asking the Lord to provide him with an opportunity to do something that will ultimately save somebody. And then he goes and takes action on it. Um, and I think when we take these ideas of prayer and action and we combine them, that's really a picture into what it's like to live the Christian life. And so I think this scene is inspiring and humbling, um, and also a reminder of God's abundant provision in the midst of a broken world. Desmond gives us a good picture of what it's like to do biblical ministry, first praying, then acting. And so that's why this scene wins my Lazarus award. Got it. Yeah.
0: I like that because I feel like I am guilty as charged of trying to do ministry without prayer. And
1: I, I've been trying to see them as more
0: uh, connected, maybe a little less mutually exclusive. I feel like a lot of my ministry has become prayer. Like, you know, sometimes like the best thing you can do for someone is just to pray for them. Sure. Like, even if it feels repetitive and simple and maybe short. But I think there's a little bit of a fallacy that we have that, like, the deeper we feel the prayer, like, the more intense our emotions are as we pray it, like, the more it'll, you know, it'll work
1: better. And also, just to add on to that, I, you know, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us uh, with prayer when we know not what to pray for ourselves. And so, uh, in that sense, prayer is communion and fellowship with God where we get to get eye to eye with the Holy Spirit and, like, align. Uh, what is going on internally with us with the truth of who God is. So great
0: reminder and it's it's hard, right? Like it's hard to sit still like anything else. I think we think that we can just pick it up and do it well, but like sometimes you have to build habits that last. Um, also shout out to you for having your jordan flu game right now i know you guys can't see Graham, but he's all he's hoodied up and
1: he's pushing through his coughs and i'm just trying to follow up on kev's inside out flu oh game gosh. that happened last year you know greatness follows oh, greatness man. also we were joking a little bit earlier about
0: just one more just one more cookout tray one more fry just one, just one, more, one more drink more cookout tray. one more episode one more drink <laughs> just one more lord
1: all right kev take me
0: to your lazarus award I'm giving my Lazarus Award to Desmond Doss carrying Smitty off the field. I'm scared. I'm
1: scared. Let's go help the pain.
2: No, don't. Don't. Don't you do that. Come on. Come on, Smitty. You stay with me. Let's
1: go. We gotta move. Come on. on.
0: The real reason this was the... Lazarus Ward for me is because of how Dos loves his enemies like basically Smitty and Doss have been enemies throughout this whole story and maybe more notably we get this idea when Dos decides to heal the Japanese uh, wounded soldier when they're sort of like in the tunnels yeah I don't know that the biblical thing is necessarily to like aid the enemy like that, especially seems inconsistent with his earlier statement that like Japan is is Satan and we're fighting the enemy, which maybe there's some false prophet there to come back to in a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, first, let's start with some scripture. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching Luke six twenty seven through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. If you're anything like me, your heart just shrivels up when you hear those words. Like what do you mean turn the other cheek? What does that even mean? Like that feels so abstract. Is there not room for biblical wisdom? Do we not have to make hard decisions about who we choose to live with and work with and spend time with? And I don't really know where to begin with a passage like this. It just feels so maddeningly unhelpful. I don't know about you, but to me, being a Christian feels like eternally being on the losing side of an argument where you're quickly pinned for being anti-this and anti-that. sure. And I just wonder, like, what if instead of being known for what we're against, we could be known for what we're for, what mm. we're radically for? Yeah. Part of what makes Jesus' story so compelling is that he's praying for his persecutors, his crucifiers, as he's nailed to a Roman cross. Yeah. And so to kind of illustrate this in pop culture, I'm going to my beloved T. Swift, and I want to kind of contrast two different songs here. So one is, you need to calm down, and let's listen to these lyrics. And snakes and stones never broke my bones so Uh-oh. you need to calm down. You're being too loud. You need to just stop. Like, can you just not step on my gown? You need to calm down. So look, I love T-Swift. You know that. If you know me, you know that. (laughs) But I think these lyrics are sort of doing this thing where it's like, we really disagree about something. Therefore, screw you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't step on my gown. Shut up. And I'm right. And she even kind of pokes fun almost like... I don't want to step on your self-expression that line. So she's sort of aware of the kind of the hypocrisy here, but like I guess this is just how I think uh, Christians are thought of sometimes. And I wonder if we might be a little bit more like Taylor Swift's uh, lyrics and happiness from the Evermore album.
2: There'll be happiness
0: after you But there is happiness because of you too. Both of these things can be true. there is
1: happiness. History. Across great divide, there is a glorious sunrise.
0: There'll be happiness after you, like I'm excited to move on from our relationship, or for whatever reason it's not working, like we disagree about it, but like at the same time, the next line, but there was happiness because of you both of these things can be true. There's happiness in our history across our great divide. There's a glorious sunrise. So there's this great divide. They're in different camps. Now there's disagreement fleshed out throughout the song, but there there's redeemable common ground here. And, and maybe this feels like different because one of them feels like sociopolitical and the other one feels like a broken relationship. But there, I mean, part of that is just speaks to our culture's lack of any mm-hmm. kind of songs that basically are glorifying the idea of like, love, choosing to love someone that you disagree with. And this is really, really hard, right? I mean, we, things feel more divided than ever. And I kind of think about Martin Luther talking about sexual temptation. Like you you can't stop a crow from landing on your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. Like there's a temptation to have hateful thoughts or even say words or actions against someone that you really disagree with. But sometimes it's just a, ch- choice to reject that right are we going to like dwell on that or are we going to sort of say like i can still choose to love this person as jesus would even though we disagree and i guess uh this movie does a great job celebrating doss's commitment to his convictions but part of what i think makes the movie special is like his convictions themselves are admirable in that he is able to like reconcile with people who think very differently from him like smitty is this alpha male rifle gunslinger right and the Japanese are very ideologically different from what the Americans are fighting for. So Doss is sort of exemplifying this concept
1: on both levels. Yeah, I love that. And thanks for the depth you dove into with Taylor Swift and also talking about Martin Luther. But yeah, I think I agree with you. And the key to that, right, is not seeing somebody as their theology or as their beliefs, but seeing somebody in the divine image of God, right? If we're going to believe Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that man and woman are created in God's image, then the reality is that every single other human that exists on the earth, regardless of anything that they've done, is an image bearer of God. And that is something that is unflappable. You cannot take that away from somebody.
0: Yeah, there really is an acute pushback on tribalism. And I also think that it's worth noting that it's good, you know, to have these ideological differences, like Doss has a clear conviction that's different than Smitty, right? and yeah. Jesus has a conviction that's different from the Pharisees, different from yeah. the Romans. Yeah, like,
1: absolutely. I hate to break it to you. They'll, they'll be both Democrats or Republicans in heaven.
0: But more but than
1: <laughs> just politics, part of it is
0: like lifestyle choices <laughs> or jobs or, sure. yeah. you know, this is such a big idea that's so challenging. Um, anyways, on to the Mary Magdalene Award. Give me a
1: low-key gospel moment from Hacksaw Ridge. My Mary Magdalene award goes to a small scene near the beginning of the film when Desmond's dad is beating Desmond's mother and Desmond breaks the fight up.
2: Why does he hate us so much? Oh, he don't hate us hates himself sometimes your daddy tonight that ain't the real him i wish he knew him like i did before the war
1: and this is my pulpit pick self-hatred is an interstate that ultimately fuels outward hate towards others and so to the world a la justin bieber uh we would probably be told that this kind of oppressor just needs to quote-unquote love yourself. Uh, And after all, isn't this the kind of solution that best fits the worldly narrative of self-love? That we are supposed to accept ourselves, believe in ourselves, that ultimately that's going to fix our relationships with one another. And while there's something to be affirmed here in the fact that a right view of self impacts a healthier version of a right view of other people, um, there's actually a richer, better offering that comes from God. And so I think scripture offers two comforts on this front. One, an empathetic understanding that we are all broken and feel this. And two, a God-sized solution that presents an alternative way to believe and therefore live. I'll start with Romans 7, uh, verses 15 through 20. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do do. And if I do not do what I want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is, as it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in me. that is a lot of do's and contrasting (laughs) language and kind of hard to spit out. But essentially, Paul is voicing his frustration that even though he's following Jesus, there seems to be the sin that's living within him that is acting out all the brokenness. I think this is a truth that everybody experiences. Believers very much experience it. We all live in and experience uh, this lament of brokenness, right? Even though God is continuing to sanctify us. We are not all the way there yet. And even though he has paid the price for sin, we don't get to live in the midst of a sinless world because sin still dwells within us. Um, and so what are we supposed to do with this problem? And I'm taking you to our second verse, which is Second Corinthians twelve nine. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so the call here is, Uh, When experiencing this intense level of spiritual brokenness from a wrong view of ourselves, it's not to hate ourselves, it's not even to focus inwardly on ourselves and how we can, I don't know, take this next step of self-improvement, but it's to cast our eyes off of ourselves and onto Jesus, Mm. who Hebrews calls the author and perfecter of our faith. And through viewing the way that Jesus views us and through aligning our eyes with the way that God sees us, as we talked about earlier in Genesis 1, we actually begin to have a healthier view of self and consequently a healthier view of the world. Uh, and so we see this pretty rarely in pop culture, um, but I actually want to pull from an Ariana Grande song uh, that came off of her most recent album. It's called POV, and here's the chorus. I
0: want to love you, the
1: way that you love So, in this song, Ariana Grande sings about her lover who happens to have this incredible perspective on her. He sees her as being beautiful lovely as being blameless and she is desiring to see herself in the same way that her lover sees her and if this isn't a picture of the way that god sees us man i don't know what is The fact that because of the sacrifice of Christ, God sees us as blameless and holy in his sight. That sin is no longer our identity. That's such a crucial aspect of what it looks like to live as a Christian. Uh, And so my final verse here is 1 John 4.18. Quote, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so as we experience and live into the perfect love of God, uh, our fear of the world and our self begins to be overshadowed by the deeper greater truth that we are his beloved and so to bring it full circle back to the scene, the movie offers a little bit of a shorthand solution that the way to you know conquer this self-hatred is through engaging in the war in yourself um, and maybe petitioning on uh, Desmond's behalf and this is half-hearted because even though he's participating in the ultimate, maybe sanctification of the world through those actions, it's not solving the deep inner issue because nothing he can take action doing is going to solve the brokenness within. So that's why this wins my Mary Magdalene award. It's also my Pulp Pick. Love that. Yeah.
0: I like how you fleshed out that the answer can't be his own positive self-talk, right? Because, you know, like the same voice that's telling him he sucks, if that's the same voice that's telling him, no, it's okay. He's great. How can you trust it? You really need something outside of you if you want any kind of objectivity. My question for you, do you think people spend more time
1: hating themselves or loving themselves? It's a good question. I would say hate. I forgot there was one quote that I was going to bring in, and this is from a famous writer, and he doesn't identify as Christian, but I feel like he had this one really good line. His name is uh, Khalil Gibran, and God said, Love your enemy, and I obeyed him and loved myself.
0: Yeah, as long as we keep that distinction that, like, it can be a slippery slope when you start to become the hero of your own story, yeah. like you said. Yeah, absolutely. But Martin Luther, to go back to back to the bottle, just one more, Lord. One more. <laughs> he was, like, relentless in his, I will not believe what the devil says about me is true. Mm-hmm. Like, over and over, he was like, I will choose to believe what God said about me. But again, it's like, where do you get that understanding of who God says you are? Like, that's gotta come from the Bible. All right, Kev, take me to your Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key gospel moment. Yeah, so I'm giving my Mary Magdalene Award to Doss not having the answer to the captain's theological question.
2: I believe in this book as much as any man. And
1: just like any man, I wrestle with my conscience, but what do you do when everything you value in this world is under attack?
2: I don't know, sir. I ain't got answers to questions that big.
0: First, let's go to 1 Peter 3.15. This is a pretty famous verse um, because I want to show you that God does ask us to prepare thoughtful answers. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so while we're doing it with gentleness and respect, it's clearly God's will for our lives that we would think about and anticipate conversations we'll have with non-believers or with other believers and being able to articulate why we believe what we believe and why that's attractive, why it's meaningful, what's so desirable about the gospel after all. But at the same time, I think sometimes and we can want to do this so badly that we can hate ourselves if we don't have the right answer. And it's sort of like your uh, ministry without prayer thing. Like the, the All the attention and emphasis starts to shift from... How can I glorify God in this moment, in this conversation? How can I trust that the Spirit draws people to salvation and only uses me, that it's not solely up to me? Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we get rid of that idea, we become like, I've got to have the right answer if this person's going to become a Christian. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And so we sort of lose this idea from two chapters ago in 1 Peter. So this is verses 13 and then 22 through 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So there's a few ideas there and you might be thinking, why'd you pick that? First, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded in verse 13. So we're not dismissing this idea that we want to have answers ready on tap, being sober-minded, like being thoughtful. Uh, but then in verse 23 to 25, it's clear that Peter wants to emphasize like obedience to truth-telling and to a sincere brotherly love. Like I have to imagine the Greek there would be philia. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Earnestness, sincerity, pure heart. These are the kind of like ideals we want in our conversations and in our relationships. And I think DOS models this really well here. Like sometimes that looks like just saying, you know, that's a big question and I don't have the answer. Um, even if you really wish that you did have the answer. And uh, an interesting thing is uh, I've been listening to this podcast about the corruption and fallout of a mega church in Seattle. These two elders are basically on trial and this like investigation committee has found them innocent, but they invite them into the room. And before they can essentially outline the results of their findings these two elders feel so betrayed and backstabbed that they just come in hot and start defending themselves and throwing a few names and examples under the bus and they actually tragically ironically leave the room guilty in trying to defend themselves when they were innocent to begin with and i think for me that was kind of an interesting story because it's sort of a, a larger idea there of what if we didn't walk into rooms feeling like we needed to defend ourselves if we're free in christ if we're justified in christ we don't have to be so defensive we don't have to have the perfect answer every time we can have a sincere sober-minded brotherly love and affection and carry an earnestness i think about uh philippines 4 like let your i think it's Philippians 4 let your reasonableness be evident to all high ideals i know as well as the lazarus awards loving your enemies high ideals but uh i i found that moment to be compelling because um, I was surprised that he didn't try to give an answer, especially in a movie where I feel like writers tend to want to kind of flex their, like, what would a great answer to this question be in this dialogue exchange between these two characters? But but this is probably the more authentic route, which is, you know, Doss doesn't really have an answer to that question.
1: I love that for a couple reasons. One, when I think about Jesus on trial, like a silent, like a lamb before its shears, is that the language that it's used? Maybe, used? I don't know. Something along those lines, but... We see Jesus very much on trial by the Roman government for crimes that he did not commit, right? And he doesn't choose to defend himself. My question for you would be, is there a place in Christianity for apologetics? Um, what is the value of that? And is there maybe a line to draw where you're like, hey, this is, this is a healthy amount that I want to learn about how to defend my faith or how I actively want to do that? Uh, or is that something that is just kind of accomplished through your scripture reading that we don't need to really delve into outside of that?
0: Yeah, no, great question. I think that's why I tried to lead with 1 Peter 3.15, because God is asking us to have answers ready, to be be ready to give a defense. But it's not just playing defense. I think it also, like when you study, try to prepare answers for these things, you actually develop a higher view of God, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you're looking at scripture. You know, it's interesting when you study the number of manuscripts of the gospel accounts that we have, things like that. It just, it strengthens your own faith to be able to defend it to someone else. So it's not just to prepare yourself for the conversation, but it's also enriching your personal relationship with God.
1: Yeah. There's sanctification that happens in any time that we spend with God. Right.
0: Yeah. It's like the head and the heart, you know, they spurn each other on mm -hmm. like when your heart gets bigger, your mind wants to study him more. And then you start studying more and you, you're like, oh my gosh, she's even bigger and more beautiful than I thought, and the heart gets bigger, and on and on and on. The classic fire firewood analogy that you use so much. Yes, yeah. The mind is the firewood, and the
1: heart is the fire. Absolutely.
0: So take me to a false prophet award for a non-biblical argument
1: that Hacksaw Ridge makes. So my false prophet award goes to the idea that non-violence is the ultimate greater good. Are you screwing with me, dust
2: No, no, sir. I volunteered. I ain't got no no problem with. Wearing my uniform, saluting the flag, and, and doing my duty is just just carrying a gun and taking a human life. She don't kill. That's all. Yes, sir, that's all. You know, quite a bit of killing does occur in a war.
1: In this award, maybe there's a greater conversation to be had, and I know we had a little bit of it on the front end, but is this more a commitment to nonviolence on desmond's end is it a commitment to individual principles is it a commitment to god and i think there's a, a distinction between all three of those categories we see desmond wrestle with this in the scene where dorothy challenges him probably nobody
2: and why can't you just pick up this stupid gun and wave it around you don't have to use it just meet them halfway
1: thought i can't do that
2: yes you can it's just pride pride and stubbornness don't confuse your will with the lord's
1: how much of Desmond's refusal to hold a gun is about God's will, and how much of it is about his own pride, or his own principles? Murder, or killing somebody, is presented in this film as being uh, the most egregious sin.
2: I could have killed him. Yes, you could have. Murder, it's the worst sin of all. And to take another man's life, that is the most egregious sin in the world. side. Nothing hurts his heart so much.
1: But biblically, I would say that that's not true. Um, there's actually only one unforgivable sin that's listed in the Gospels, and that is in Matthew twelve thirty one, which says it is unforgivable to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Practically, I'm also a little bit wondering how this idea of nonviolence plays out in order that Desmond survives this film and ultimately glorifies God with, with how he lives his life. Does his commitment of violence essentially require others must sin in order that Desmond may not. There's a clear benefit that Desmond receives from being under the protection of armed men, right? Like, theoretically, if one Japanese guy is shooting at him and his fellow soldier shoots that Japanese guy. Desmond does not die from that, and therefore he benefits. And I know, Kev, you and I are very much not experts on this category. I haven't done near enough research. But we do get to see Exodus 20, 13, which is the sixth of the Ten Commandments that says do not murder. But then two chapters later, we get Exodus 22 that's giving a little bit more you know, cultural law that says, if a thief is found breaking in and is stuck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. God in Mosaic law seems to be presenting an instance uh, in self-defense where murder would be, quote unquote, justified. Uh, And obviously in the Old Testament, we have the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, waging war on different uh, nations around them. And God clearly sanctioning the killing of other people in war. And yet Jesus comes along, and what Jesus does is he uplifts moral law, right? Jesus communicates that if we even uh, hate a person in our heart that is committing murder. And so Jesus is uplifting this law almost to illuminate, you know, I think about when I'm on a photo app and I'm using the contrast bar, he is drawing a higher and higher contrast between our own sinfulness and God's goodness, Again, I don't know if that's really adding any answers to this. Um, I think the story of Desmond and how he commits to nonviolence in God's will is individually redemptive, but I'd be careful of making it a rule because I think there are ways to live a life that is biblically sound when you are fighting for a righteous cause, defending people around you. I, I know that line gets blurry when the war seems a little bit more unjust, uh, and maybe the person that is trying to shoot you is has another righteous reason for fighting on their end. But I think nonviolence is, is important. I think it is the way of Jesus, but I don't think it is the ultimate greater good. I think it's Desmond's commitment to God here that trumps his commitment to nonviolence, that trumps his commitment to individual principles. And while the latter two of those uh, are important, I think they're only important and justified when they fall under the umbrella of the first one, which is a commitment to God. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess this is the heart of it, right? Like if you've seen Hacksaw Ridge and you clicked on this episode, at some point you probably thought the conversation was going here and it has to. Because certainly in the Old Testament, right, we have God sort of divinely commanding the Israelites to take the promised land. And God actually gets really upset with the Israelites when they don't kill everyone. Right. Because he's so jealous for his people that he knows that the interweavings of the cultural practices is going to ruin them. And it does. But that's very different from America versus Japan, right? So, yeah, we're not experts, but I agree. Like, DOS certainly benefits. I guess my question is, like, is he more pacifistic if he doesn't go to the war effort at all and stays at home? Like, what do we do with that? Because, he, you know, he says over and over uh, he wants to do his duty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, clearly he wants the U.S. to defeat Japan.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that, I think that's the million-dollar question. Um, I do think that there is something admirable about engaging in a battlefield of brokenness and choosing to show up in the midst of that as opposed from staying at home because your principles won't allow you to engage in that. And maybe there's a lesson to be learned there for what it's like to do ministry that as much as our quote unquote individual principles that maybe have trumped even God's principles, seem to dominate our lives like we're called to go into a broken world and meet people in the midst of suffering and so i think there's something admirable about that and i think i can empathize with both his perspective and the perspective of his fellow soldiers for especially in that second act there all right kev take me to your false prophet award
0: so it's pretty similar so we're going to keep the conversation rolling but i think misunderstanding god's law Specifically, God's Law in this movie, I feel like, is sort of seen as an inconvenient code that breeds moral superiority and makes things harder on everyone else. Do you have any other requirements for the United States Army? Is there anything else that we can do to ensure that you have a comfortable stay here
2: with us? He doesn't want to work on Saturday, sir. Well, Saturday's... I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, so... Saturday is my Sabbath, so I'm not allowed to work then. I don't think that poses a problem, do you, Sergeant? We should simply ask the enemy not to invade on the Sabbath because Private Doss here is at prayer.
0: And I guess this is how I just feel like people think about God's law. You know, there's a the scene where um, Vince Vaughn, back-to-back episodes. Shout out, Vince Vaughn. So he's the sergeant, and it's basically like, Doss here isn't able to pick up a gun, so don't expect him to help you on the battlefield. And now we all have to pick up for his slack.
2: You see, Private Doss is a conscientious objector. i plead with you do not look to him to save you on the battlefield because he will undoubtedly
0: be too busy wrestling with his conscience
2: to assist sarge that's not true sarge
1: as you were
0: Dawes' principles are sort of seen as this like burden that everyone else has to bear and i wonder if people feel that way about like christians upholding the law because the reality here is that the law is something very very different so let's start with scripture maybe affirm before we critique. What is God's law? What is the Bible about? What, why are these principles not only enforced by God, but desirable? Like Why Why is this in the Bible? Let's start with Psalm 1. I'm going to give you a few different images and ideas. Psalm 1, 1 through 1-3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stays in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So what would you say the image of someone who is rooted in God's law is there? Strong tree, right? Deep roots, good fruit. Strong tree, positioned by the water, bearing fruit in season, does not wither. So there's something about being in God's law, delighting in it, that's sustaining and steady and growing and life-giving. Let's go to Psalm 19, seven through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, even honey straight from the comb moreover by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward a lot of different kind of synonyms for the law there right the law of the lord the testimony the precepts commandments uh, the rules but finer than fine gold sweeter than honey even straight from the comb and then lastly John 6:35 Jesus said to him i am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst how do you and i come to jesus You know, we didn't have the experience that the people in John 6 are able to have a face to face. So we read the Bible. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, if you eat me, you shall not hunger. I don't know about you, but like I eat a lot of food and I'm still hungry afterward. And I don't like that feeling, you know, and it's nice to know that in heaven, there's never going to be that feeling like Jesus is the bread of life. What he's saying is like, you're not going to be hungry. You're going to be full. You're going to be satisfied. You're not going to want one more Lord, one more brownie, one more (laughs) more salad, one more smoothie, one more, one more cookout tray. He's the bread of life. You will not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. And that's what the Bible is promising, right? Because that's where we meet Jesus. That's where we hear what he has to say to us. This is what God's law is really about. It's it's life-giving. It is it's the thing that we don't even realize how desperately we need it. We're like thirsty uh wanderers in the desert, and all we want is potato chips, and we don't we don't realize that what we want actually is water. And yet in Hacksaw Ridge, I think the idea is that God's law is this just kind of big inconvenience that everyone else has to bear and that you have to bear like Doss probably wonders like man i'd like to pick up a rifle but i can't my convictions won't allow me you know i'm sure he feels kind of at odds by it is he really like yes this is the best version of me
1: <clears throat> i love that there are a couple different things that stick out to me there's this one c.s lewis quote and i'm totally gonna butcher it but he talks about our desires not being too uh not being too strong but not strong enough how oftentimes we would rather settle for playing in the mud than a holiday at sea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really what the Christian life offers, is an invitation to be a part of this full life that Jesus promises in John 10.10. And I think we see that with Desmond here, is he is called out of the world in the way that he is not living with principles that align with the world principles, uh, but he's called back into it to participate in the healing of it. He has this line where he says, with the world so bent on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to try to put it back together.
2: Right in the middle with the other guys, no less danger, just while everybody else is taking life, I'm gonna be saving it. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together.
0: Yeah, and there's there's a few other nitpicks in this movie, right? Like the Japanese as these evil animals, like we're fighting Satan himself, or prayer as this mystical revelation. Although I guess it kind of counteracts itself in that one because there's also the line from Doss where he says, like, "Yeah, I pray to God, but it's not like a conversation, not like we're having right now." Sometimes I feel like we we think we're supposed to have prayer that's like this very mystical back and forth conversation. And yeah, anyway, tangent. I'm, I'm what I'm trying to say here is there's there's lots of nitpicks for false prophets in this war. But when I was really trying to step back and say, what is this movie really arguing that I think is not good? I think it's this idea of God's law is inconvenient. I kind of think about Angela from the office. Mm. Like, I think that is how our world thinks of like Christians and submitting to God's word. Oh, stick up her butt. (laughs) Like she's miserable herself and she makes things miserable for everyone around her because she wants to submit to God's rules, which aren't even really God's rules. They're just moral superiority claims i don't know yeah anyways uh take me to your jesus award for the most christ-like character in
1: hacksaw ridge so maybe it's a cop-out maybe it's just too clear but i gotta go with desmond Doss. one he has a deep commitment to biblical principles and ideals uh two he has a heart for the wounded three he has compassion for the enemy uh and four but this is the one i actually really want to focus on is that he returns to the battlefield And so I think this is a part that's overlooked, but really one of the elements of the movie that hit me strongest emotionally is that uh, Desmond goes and saves 75 people and finally comes down from Hacksaw Ridge, right? And he's uh, sitting back at base camp, and you're like, oh, finally, the end of the movie, he can go home. But no, the job isn't done. We have to go back up tomorrow.
2: I realize that tomorrow is your
1: Sabbath this idea of returning to the broken world is actually really important, and there are two separate times where Jesus does this, or at least promises to do it. One is when he returns to life, uh, returns to earth post-crucifixion, and second, his promise to return uh, at the end of times. Uh, This is kind of going full circle back to creation, right? We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, which kind of completes the quote-unquote circle of life shot at the Lion King. I think we see this very much with Dawes here, that he is Christ-like in the way that he returns to the battlefield, uh, the very place that is most fearful to him, the place where he has been most harmed in the world, um, because that is where the greatest need is. Jesus should have no desire to come back to earth after how we treated him the first time, right? And so when I thought of some verses to encapsulate Dawes, uh, I kind of drifted towards the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 7 through 10 says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think Doss kind of hits every single element of uh, the Beatitudes here. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We see him doing that to Smitty and also to the Japanese. Blessed for the pure in heart. For they will see God. I think we see that in his relationship with Dorothy, um, and also his fellow soldiers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Clearly a peacemaker. Um, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And maybe we can kind of contextualize that with his willingness to take a stand on nonviolence. And again, we've kind of mitigated that. Maybe that's not the ultimate greater good. But if he is choosing to do this out of righteousness, like blessed is he because he is being persecuted for a choice uh, that he believes is biblically aligned uh, in following in the ways of Jesus and the life that he's been called to live. Doss fits these Beatitudes. Um, He kind of qualifies on the numerous ways I showed, and so that's why he wins my Jesus Award. Yeah, I like it.
0: Question for you. Is that the most qualifying trait about him for the Jesus
1: Award? Probably not, no. I think when I I think about the most qualifying, it's probably the fact that he, he heals and saves people. What would you say? Well, I'll just take you to my
0: Jesus Ward because it is Desmond Doss. And for me, I gave it to him because of his unwavering conviction to the principle of life. Like, we got this great line here, his belief inspires those around him.
2: Most of these men don't believe the same way
0: you do. But they believe so much
1: and how much you believe. And what you did on that really is nothing short of a miracle. they want a piece of it.
0: So for this, I've got Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The part that jumped out there for me was stirring up one another to love and good works. I think DOS is faith for lack of a better word inspires those around him even if it's not faith in the same thing and i guess the truer and greater version of this tom tog true of me more true of god
1: tom tog we love tom tog
0: john 17 24 through 26 jesus is unwavering faith in his father father i desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where i am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make known your name, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So maybe a little abstract, certainly out of context here, uh, or or like there's a lot of context here, but um, Jesus is clearly distinct from his Father, and he clearly has a belief in his Father, and it's going to get tested in a few hours in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is You know ambushed by Roman guards and even betrayed by Judas like Jesus has to Has a choice to hold fast to am I really the chosen one am I going to die and rise again and save Sinners from sin forever or is this not true? And then that one moment of separation from his father How could you have forsaken me on the cross that kind of cataclysmic Spiritual divide between sin and holiness. uh, He feels that difference And so I guess what i'm trying to say here is like yes Yes our faith should inspire those around us like that is God working through us. Like people come to know Jesus through our knowing of Jesus, but more truly and more importantly, like Jesus believed in his father and it was his perfect life that makes it possible for us.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's the it's the Hebrews 12, right? The the author perfected our faith. And I think that's, you know, the principle driven Enneagram one version of Jesus, right? That like we get to see a little bit here in, in Desmond. And so I would agree that that steadfast commitment to principles is an inherently biblical so long as those are the right principles.
0: And I'm feeling a little bit bad. It's feeling like this episode is a little bit one-dimensional. We're just all in on DOS. Like we haven't really talked about Dorothy played by Teresa Palmer or, you know, Vince Vaughn, the sergeant, and, and even like Smitty, Luke Bracey, and captain whatever the captain's name is sam worthington like yeah. a lot of great acting and a lot of great characters and we just haven't really talked about them and i'm leaving out hugo weaving actually who i think of as being this like fantasy you know he's lord elrond and lord of the rings and he's also marvel he's like the skull guy from uh captain america oh yeah i thought yeah. he played like an amazing dad i guess you kind of talked about his character in your mary magdalene right yeah but i just feel bad i feel like bit. we've been a little bit one-dimensional but i i, I think we're both in agreement that like dos is the jesus character of this movie yeah. like who else would it be you know no. i guess you could give it to dorothy maybe
1: right but it would be the alternative it'd be the alt take because this movie is very much about Doss. like but that
0: doesn't make him any more qualified for the jesus award true true and i guess dorothy has some pretty great moments but i think Doss is like a, a biblical character and it's part of why this is like a, a resonant movie for me
1: yeah absolutely
0: Although it wasn't a slam dunk. Also, we should note that this movie is only five years old, yeah. which I was surprised by. I, for some reason, I thought this had been around way longer.
1: You know, Andrew Garfield's actually done a couple of different films, kind of with the issue of faith. He, he was in this movie in 2017 called Silence, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, about 17th century Portuguese missionaries that came up a lot in the research of this film. But kind of Christian suffering seems to be something that Andrew Garfield tends to gravitate towards also British, playing an American, so pretty good job on the Southern accent.
0: Yeah, I thought he did a great job, but we're rambling here. That's it for the awards, and now on to our special guest, Jordan Wagnon. Jordan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days.
2: My name's Jordan. I live in Charlotte. I work in accounting, but on the side, I like to watch movies. And uh, I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama. I've been in Charlotte five years this month.
0: Awesome, and what are you gonna be talking about today? What's one way that God has revealed the gospel or a biblical truth in something you've watched or read or listened to lately?
2: Recently, I watched an old favorite, uh, The Princess Diaries. For those of you who haven't seen this movie in a while, the premise is that Mia is a really shy, awkward teenager, and she's told she is the princess of a small country called Genovia. No! No, because if he's really a
1: prince, then i Exactly. You're not just Amelia Thermopolis. You are Amelia Mignonette Thermopolis Renaldi, princess of Genovia. Me?
2: A, a princess? Shut up!
0: I beg your pardon. Shut up. Your Majesty... In America...
2: Why on earth would you pick me to be your princess? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. Now you have really got the wrong girl. I never lead anybody. Not at, not at Brownies. Not at Campfire Girls. Um, Queen Clarice, my expectation in life is to be invisible and I'm good at it. By the end of the movie, she is still set on not being the princess of Genovia. She's about to run away when she finds a letter written by her long lost father. Amelia, courage is not the absence of fear but rather
1: the judgment that something else is more important than fear. The brave may not live forever, but the cautious do not live at all. From
2: now on, you'll be traveling the road between who you think you are and who you can be. The key is to allow yourself to make the journey. This is the turning point for Mia, and it's also my kind of gospel moment of the movie. First Peter 2:10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Romans 8 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. In the movie, Mia learns towards the end that um, the more important implication of being a princess, besides being uh, pretty and kissing babies and all of that, is that she can serve and help the people of Genovia. And our parallel as believers is that we are saved not just to become whole ourselves, but to love and serve God by loving and serving others. So that's what I took away from that movie.
0: Awesome.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I think there are so many beautiful parallels there. Just a couple stories that follow the hero's journey really come to mind when I think about Harry Potter or Narnia about these people who are princes or like well renowned in this world that they have no familiarity with. And yet that world comes pursuing them. And as much as they refuse the journey, right? uh, It's ultimately fate or that world that wins out. And so the reality that like we are more than conquerors through Christ. We are, we are co-heirs. And that can be a really intimidating thing because that's a high crown to hold above our heads. Right. But I think that there's so much beauty when we choose to live into that identity. So I think there's so much to be affirmed there.
2: Yeah. I love just what you mentioned about kind of the hero's journey and just the element of destiny. And that's definitely present in this film. Um, It reminds me of Psalm 139 where it says, In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Um, And there's just that element of this is her destiny. It's who she is. There's not an escape from that because God created us to be who we are.
0: Isn't there a line like late in the movie where who's who? What's the name of the love interest?
2: Michael, Michael Moskowitz.
0: Yeah. So doesn't he say something sort of like beauty was always inner. You became a princess, but like... Like, doesn't he have some kind of really gospel line towards the end?
2: They kind of like each other in the beginning and then kind of the power dynamic shifts in their relationship. She's the really awkward one and now she's the beautiful one kind of choosing him. He says, why me? And she says, because you saw me when I was invisible. Mm. Why me? Because you saw me when I was invisible. I watched it twice in preparation for this. And I was like, yeah. man, the lessons here are so overt that like, it's kind of cheesy.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jordan. This was awesome. Thank you, Jordan.
2: Yeah. Thank y'all.
0: See you at the Jimmys. Yes. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there. But before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Samantha Armis, Kelly Barkley, Courtney, Kristen, Craig, and Heather Carlock, Tanner Carlson, Gabe Doherty, Jacob Derizio, Ben Dunbar, Thomas Eldridge, William Harwood, Graham Janet, Ken Hutton, Taylor Huffman. Woot woot. Hunter Keys, Maggie King, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, John Pabone, Scott Pajotchik, Logan Russell, Andy Simmons, Will Smith, Kim Streamer, Helen Webster, Clay Young. Thank you all so much for your support. Information about the podcast can be found on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies, but for $1 a month, you can get our weekly updates, a vote towards movie picks, shoutouts on the podcast, features on our Instagram, and an invite for you and a plus one to the Jimmies by becoming a patron at patreon.com/jesusandmovies or on the free Patreon app. How much did I say that was, Graham? A dollar. One dollar. Please write us at jesusmovies@gmail.com. gmail.com. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, give us a review uh, and let us know what you think. That helps us to learn more about what's working and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus and Movies podcast. We hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that even while nailed to a Roman cross, Jesus held to his conviction that God the Father would resurrect him to save you and me. And we'll see you next month.